In July 1971, eight-year-old Douglas Legg and his family vacationed at the Santa Noni Estate in New York's Adirondack Mountains. This 12,500-acre luxury resort was a haven for the wealthy and was soon to close its doors to the public, making the Legg family one of the last to experience its rustic elegance. What should have been a memorable vacation turned into a lifelong nightmare for Douglas's parents. On July 10th, Douglas and his uncle set out for a short hike. Noticing poison ivy along the trail, the uncle sent Douglas back to their cabin to change into long pants. The cabin was only a short distance away, and the uncle expected Douglas to return quickly. However, Douglas never came back. Growing increasingly concerned, the uncle retraced his steps and learned from Douglas's older brother that the boy was last seen near the estate's main lodge. Despite an immediate search involving estate staff, Douglas remained missing. The police were alerted, and one of New York's largest search and rescue operations was launched, involving park rangers, tracker dogs, helicopters with infrared cameras, and a thousand volunteers. Despite their efforts, no trace of Douglas was found. At one point, a bloodhound followed Douglas's scent for nearly 30 miles, ending at a small pond. This led to the chilling theory that Douglas may have been abducted and deliberately washed down to throw off the scent. The search continued for six weeks, but Douglas seemed to have vanished without a trace. Over the years, various leads emerged, but led nowhere. In 1993, a woman claimed her relative had killed Douglas, but her information proved unreliable. That same year, a Montana man reported finding child-sized skeletal remains near the estate in 1973, but had not reported it due to fear of arrest for illegal hunting. Despite a search, no remains were found. In 2020, a fragment of a bone was discovered during a training exercise by the New York State Police's underwater recovery team. Although initially promising, the fragment was later identified as animal remains. The case remains as cold as ever, and the person or entity responsible for Douglas's disappearance is still at large. The haunting question remains, could they strike again? Born on September 16, 1993, Corey McKeague grew up in Dunfermline, Scotland, not far from Edinburgh. After graduating from St. Columba's High School, he joined the RAF Regiment, the infantry arm of the UK's Royal Air Force, in 2013. By the summer of 2016, Corey had been with his unit, Number 2 Squadron, for nearly two years. Stationed near the picturesque village of Huntingdon in southern England, Corey was a well-liked member of his unit. On the last weekend of September 2016, Corey planned a night out in the nearby town of Barrie St. Edmunds. He intended to leave his car there overnight and return to base the next morning. However, the night took a mysterious turn that would baffle investigators for years to come. After a night of heavy drinking, Corey was asked to leave Flex nightclub due to extreme intoxication. Security footage showed him at a nearby fast food restaurant, Mama Mia's, between 1.15 and 1.30 a.m. Instead of waiting for his friends, Corey was seen walking off into the night. At 3.25 a.m., another camera captured him walking down Brent Govel Street before disappearing into a small cul-de-sac. Corey's absence wasn't noted until Monday, September 26th, when his superiors realized he was missing. Astonishingly, none of his friends found his absence suspicious. A search was launched, but no trace of Corey was found. 
His mother revealed that Corey had a habit of sleeping rough after a night out, leading to a horrifying theory. Phone data indicated Corey's phone had moved 12 miles northwest within 28 minutes, suggesting he wasn't on foot. One theory posited that Corey might have climbed into a garbage bin to sleep and was subsequently crushed by a garbage truck. However, this theory was later ruled out. As the search waned, Corey's mother accused the Suffolk police of inadequate investigation and initiated a GoFundMe campaign to hire a private investigator. In March 2017, a 26-year-old man was arrested for providing incorrect information about the weight of the suspected garbage truck, reviving the earlier theory. However, no conclusive evidence was found. Corey's father eventually accepted that his son was likely deceased, but his mother continued to search for answers. In March 2022, a coroner concluded that Corey had died from compression asphyxia after climbing into a commercial waste bin. However, this remains an educated guess, and the true circumstances of Corey McKeague's disappearance continue to elude understanding. Some suggest that Corey's fate is part of a larger, inexplicable phenomenon of disappearances, a mystery that may never be solved. In the summer of 2015, 22-year-old Morgan Heimer was living his dream job as a rafting guide for Tour West, a Wyoming-based company. Taking a break from his English studies at the University of Wyoming, Morgan was earning extra cash while doing what he loved. He quickly became a reliable member of the team and was selected to guide a trip through the Grand Canyon National Park in Arizona. However, this dream trip would turn out to be one he'd never return from. On June 2, 2015, the sixth day of an eight-day rafting journey down the Colorado River, something unusual happened. Around 4 p.m., while the group was resting near Pumpkin Springs, a geothermal hot spring, Morgan asked the lead guide for a private conversation. Although the details of their talk remain unclear, Morgan seemed fine. However, when the lead guide was called away by a client and turned back, Morgan had vanished. Initial searches by the lead guide and some clients yielded no results. At 7.26 p.m., authorities were alerted. The next morning, a large search and rescue team arrived at the Grand Canyon National Park. Despite Morgan's outdoor skills and physical fitness, hopes of finding him alive dwindled after 48 hours of continuous searching. The rescue team considered various possibilities, including a fatal accident or drowning, but found no evidence to support these theories. Morgan's bright clothing and purple water bottle should have made him easy to spot, yet he remained missing. Even after the initial search was called off, park rangers and volunteers continued to scour the area for months, but Morgan seemed to have vanished without a trace. While most believe a tragic accident involving the Colorado River is the most likely explanation, no evidence has been found to support this. Morgan's disappearance remains one of the few cases where someone has vanished without a trace in a U.S. national park. Although some suggest that local wildlife could have disposed of human remains, it's unlikely they would consume items like a baseball cap or a water bottle, which Morgan had with him. Alternative theories range from Morgan starting a new life in Mexico to more supernatural explanations, but none provide a satisfactory answer. Despite public pleas from his family, Morgan has never made contact, leaving behind only questions and heartbreak.
Born on April 3, 1966, Laureen Ron was primarily raised by her mother Judith in Manchester, New Hampshire. A popular and academically inclined teenager, Laureen had a close relationship with her mother and aspired to be an actress. However, as she neared her 14th birthday, her behavior began to change. She started neglecting her artistic pursuits in favor of drinking and smoking weed. On April 26, 1980, Judith left Laureen alone at home to attend her boyfriend's tennis tournament. Although Laureen usually accompanied her, she chose to stay home this time. Judith arranged for relatives to check on Laureen throughout the day. After the last relative left, Laureen invited friends over. They drank and smoked until they heard voices in the hallway around 12.30 a.m., assuming it was Judith returning. One friend, an older boy, left hastily to avoid being caught by Judith. However, when Judith returned home after 1.15 a.m., she found the lights in the building's hallway turned off. Upon investigation, she discovered that the bulbs had been unscrewed on every floor. Entering her apartment, she found Laureen's female friend asleep in Laureen's bed, but no sign of her daughter. A panicked search ensued, and Laureen was officially declared missing after 3.45 a.m. Initially, police suspected Laureen had run away, but inconsistencies in witness accounts raised doubts. Both friends were questioned. The girl had a hazy memory due to intoxication, and the boy seemed nervous, but was not considered a suspect. Six months later, Judith noticed unfamiliar numbers on her phone bill, one from a motel in Santa Monica and another from a teen health hotline. The hotline operator, a physician, claimed to provide health advice and sometimes aid in rescuing exploited girls, but had no information on Laureen. Further investigation revealed that Laureen might have obtained alcohol from a local convenience store, raising questions about the store owner's involvement. Mysterious late-night calls to Judith and Laureen's aunt persisted for years, adding another layer of complexity to the case. In a shocking turn, the male friend who had been with Laureen on the night she disappeared was found dead in his apartment in 1985, reigniting interest in the case. A private investigator, Carol Jensen, began looking into the Santa Monica Motel and discovered it might be a front for child exploitation. Despite these leads, Laureen's disappearance remains unsolved, leaving behind a web of unanswered questions and dark theories. Whether she fell victim to exploitation or something else, the truth remains elusive. In the summer of 1975, 21-year-old Deborah Carrick from New Hampshire set out on an epic road trip to attend a friend's wedding in California. Her plan was to visit every national park along the way. On August 2nd, she said her goodbyes and boarded a bus. By August 4th, she had reached Rapid City, South Dakota, and visited Mount Rushmore and Wind Cave National Park. While in Yellowstone, Deborah met a group of hikers around her age. They quickly bonded, and one of the girls even offered her a place to stay in Idaho Falls. Later, Deborah met a man named Vern, and they traveled together, visiting several parks. However, a cryptic journal entry on August 16th hinted at a possible falling out between them. Deborah then called her younger sister, mentioning she'd be traveling to the Grand Canyon with three French girls she met in Denver. However, hotel records in Flagstaff, Arizona, indicated she was alone. After leaving her hotel, presumably for the Grand Canyon, Deborah disappeared. Days later, her family reported her missing. 
A disturbing discovery was made on August 26th. Some of Deborah's belongings were found on a California highway near Sebastopol, an area where four murdered women had been discovered. This led many to suspect a serial killer was involved. On September 2nd, four of Deborah's traveler's checks were cashed by an unidentified male in California, and more were cashed in New Mexico the next day. On September 9th, the devastating news arrived. Deborah's body was found in a canyon off Highway 64, dead from blunt force trauma. The prime suspect was William Zamastil, a convicted murderer living in the area at the time. His modus operandi seemed to match the circumstances of Deborah's death, but due to the advanced decomposition of her body, it was impossible to confirm. Zamastil was later convicted for other murders and is currently in a Wisconsin prison. However, the likelihood of him being tried for Deborah's murder is slim, given the case is now 47 years old and most witnesses are no longer available. With her parents deceased, only Deborah's younger sister remains to seek justice, but unless new evidence emerges, the case is unlikely to be resolved. Born on July 5, 1990, Derek James Engritson grew up in Klamath Falls, Oregon, as a smart but reserved young man who loved nature. On December 5, 1998, eight-year-old Derek joined his father and grandfather on a trip to Pelican Butte near Rocky Point, Oregon, to find a Christmas tree, a family tradition. They parked their truck and began exploring the snowy forest, eventually finding a tree that met Derek's approval. As his father and grandfather began chopping it down, they momentarily lost sight of Derek. Within minutes, he had vanished. Realizing the severity of the situation, Derek's father and grandfather rushed to the nearest phone to report him missing. The Klamath County Sheriff's Department initiated a search, optimistic at first because Derek had some survival skills and was carrying a small hatchet. By dawn, they found a makeshift shelter and a trail of boot prints leading to a clearing near a highway. Oddly, they also found a well-formed snow angel, raising questions about Derek's sudden disappearance. Despite their best efforts, a subsequent blizzard hampered the search. When it cleared, additional resources, including sniffer dogs and helicopters, were deployed, but to no avail. The search was eventually called off after eight days. Derek's family continued to look for him with the help of volunteers, but made no progress. A witness later reported seeing a man struggling with a young boy near the area where Derek disappeared. Another report mentioned an unidentified man in a two-door Honda asking for directions to the woods. Despite these leads, the man was never located. Less than a year later, graffiti referencing Derek's abduction was found in a rest area bathroom over 200 miles away, adding another layer of mystery to the case. In 2008, Frank James Milligan emerged as a potential suspect. He was already serving a sentence for assaulting a 10-year-old in a town near Salem, Oregon. However, he has not been charged in connection with Derek's disappearance. To this day, what happened to Derek remains a mystery. Was he the victim of a human or animal predator, or is there another, more inexplicable explanation? After more than two decades, the case remains unsolved, leaving us with more questions than answers. On July 24, 2019, 32-year-old Jordan Moray, 
a quiet man with a love for the outdoors, walked into a convenience store in his peaceful hometown of Aberdare, Wales. He bought a bottle of water at 11.26 a.m. and then mysteriously vanished. Given Jordan's penchant for camping trips that sometimes lasted a week, his parents didn't grow concerned until eight days later when their texts to him went unanswered. Upon checking his apartment, they found the front door open, his PlayStation on, and his phone charging. It seemed as though he had left in a hurry, but planned to return shortly. A police search revealed that a black backpack, camping burner, headlamp, and black sneakers were missing from his apartment, suggesting he left with a purpose. Search and rescue teams focused on the nearby Brecon Beacons National Park, deploying thermal imaging drones, tracker dogs, and night vision equipment. However, bad weather hampered their efforts. The lead search officer doubted that Jordan was camping in the area, as he had left behind his phone and wallet. A year later, in January 2021, a potential sighting of Jordan was reported in Stratford-upon-Avon, 120 miles away from Aberdare. A man claimed he had spoken to someone fitting Jordan's description in September 2020, who said he was living off the grid and had previously lived in Wales. Despite this lead and regular visits to the area by Jordan's family, he remains missing. Two main theories have emerged. The first suggests that Jordan went for a hike and was met with an accident. This seems plausible, given he hasn't used his bank account or made contact since his disappearance. However, the state of his apartment raises questions. Why would he leave his phone, keep his PlayStation running, and leave his front door open if he planned to go camping? The second theory speculates that Jordan may have chosen to disappear and start anew. The Stratford sighting supports this, but it doesn't explain why he left his wallet and cash behind. Furthermore, it seems unlikely that he would cut off all contact with his family. The absence of evidence for foul play or self-harm makes these theories inconclusive. If Jordan did meet his fate in the Brecon Beacons, it's puzzling why search teams have not found him. The area is not as expansive as U.S. national parks and lacks dense forest cover that could conceal him. In the end, the mystery of Jordan's disappearance remains unsolved, challenging our understanding of reality and leaving us to wonder if science is yet equipped to explain such baffling cases. Born on September 2, 1965, Andy Puglisi grew up in Lawrence, Massachusetts. By the age of 10, he was living with his mother and stepfather in the stadium housing projects, located near the city's Veterans Memorial Stadium. The community was a pleasant place to grow up, close to Shanshin Ballpark and Stadium Plaza Shopping Center. Andy particularly enjoyed spending time at the public swimming pool across from his apartment. On August 22, 1976, Andy was swimming with his friend Melanie Perkins. Around 2 p.m., Melanie decided to go home for lunch. Although her home was nearby, she felt uneasy walking alone and had her older brother accompany her. She didn't return to the pool that day. At about 5.45 p.m., a lifeguard saw Andy near the pool's edge. However, when he didn't come home by 6 p.m., his parents grew concerned and went looking for him. Andy was nowhere to be found. Initially, police considered Andy a runaway, possibly seeking his biological father. However, his father had no information about Andy's whereabouts. The next day, 
a massive search operation was launched involving police, volunteers, National Guardsmen, and Special Forces soldiers. Despite extensive efforts, including searching nearby woods and dredging the Shashin River, no trace of Andy was found. Six days later, the search was scaled down, and the grim reality set in that Andy might never be found alive. A week after that, Wayne Chapman was arrested in New York for impersonating a police officer. His van contained disturbing items, including a blood-stained child's sock. Although he confessed to assaulting two boys in Lawrence, he was never charged in connection with Andy's disappearance due to a lack of direct evidence. In 1998, Melanie Perkins released a documentary called Have You Seen Andy?, which delved into the mysterious circumstances surrounding Andy's disappearance. The film revealed that at least five known predators were in the vicinity of the pool on the day Andy vanished. Additionally, two local men, Alan and Tony, recounted discovering a peculiar rectangular hole in the woods near the pool a year or two after Andy's disappearance. When they returned days later, the hole was filled in, leaving them puzzled. The case has since caught the attention of readers of the Missing 411 series, which explores unsolved missing persons cases with potential supernatural elements. While some focus on Wayne Chapman as the prime suspect, others are intrigued by the mysterious hole and the possibility of unexplained phenomena. As our understanding of the world evolves, perhaps future advancements will shed light on the inexplicable aspects of this case. For now, the disappearance of Andy Puglisi remains an unsettling mystery. In February 1978, 23-year-old Stephen Kubaki was a history major at Hope College, a small Christian university in Holland, Michigan, near the southeastern shores of Lake Michigan. Known as an eccentric intellectual, Stephen was also an avid outdoorsman, he had planned a solo cross-country skiing trip for a weekend in February, intending to return by Monday. When he didn't show up for classes on Tuesday, concern escalated into alarm. According to a local news report dated February 21, 1978, snowmobilers found a pair of cross-country skis and a backpack abandoned in the snow. Authorities initiated a search, focusing on the area where Stephen had started his trip. They discovered a 200-yard trail of footprints leading to the edge of Lake Michigan, where they abruptly stopped. The conclusion was grim. Stephen had likely drowned under the unbroken ice of the lake. His family braced themselves for a long, agonizing wait for answers. However, the answers when they came were shocking. Stephen woke up one Saturday night on a patch of grass, disoriented and wearing unfamiliar clothes. He was in Pittsfield, but not the one in Michigan. He was in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, over 700 miles away from his starting point. Even more astonishingly, when he saw a newspaper, the date read May 5, 1979. He had lost 15 months of his life with no recollection of what had happened. Stephen managed to hitchhike to his aunt's house in nearby Great Barrington, Massachusetts. His reappearance became a national sensation. At a press conference, Stephen revealed that his new backpack contained maps, hitchhiking signs, and memorabilia from various cities, suggesting extensive travel during his missing period. He also had $40 in cash, new glasses, sneakers, and a t-shirt from a Wisconsin marathon. Despite this, medical examinations found him to be in perfect health. For years, Stephen, now a psychologist in the Pacific Northwest, has refused to discuss his disappearance. 
Even his ex-wife remains tight-lipped about the incident. Online forums have speculated about the Lake Michigan Triangle, an area known for mysterious disappearances and phenomena, as a possible explanation. However, Stephen's case remains one of the most perplexing instances of a missing person reappearing alive, and it seems destined to remain an unsolved mystery. Born on January 31, 1979, in Surrey, England, Ruth Wilson was the eldest daughter of Ian and Karen Wilson. The family resided on Wanham Lane in the quaint village of Betchworth. Both parents worked as teachers in local schools. Ruth was an exceptionally bright child, showing an early aptitude for reading and music. Despite her academic pursuits, she also maintained a vibrant social life, often spending time with friends when not studying or working her weekend job at a local music store. However, in late 1995, when Ruth was 16, a series of unsettling and tragic events unfolded, culminating in a lingering mystery. That summer, Ruth's best friend Catherine announced she was moving to Sheffield, South Yorkshire. The girls missed each other terribly, and Ruth visited Catherine for a sleepover in late October or early November. Catherine's mother noted that the girls were thrilled to see each other, but saddened to part ways. Ruth even asked if she could move in with them, a request that was declined, leaving her visibly upset. Catherine's mother reached out to Ruth's parents, who assured her that everything was fine at home. However, this wasn't entirely accurate. On November 25, 1995, after working her usual shift at the music store, Ruth dined with her ex-boyfriend, Will Kennedy, and their mutual friend, Neil Philipson. Both young men later reported that Ruth insisted on paying for their meals, an unusually generous act given her financial situation. The following day, Ruth attended orchestra practice at her local church and had dinner at Will Kennedy's home. His mother found her to be in good spirits, but noted a peculiar request. Ruth asked to borrow some old clothes. Two days later, Ruth told her younger sister Jenny that she would walk to school alone. Will Kennedy saw her walking and offered her a ride, which she declined. Ruth never arrived at school and she was never seen again. After realizing she was missing, Ruth's parents contacted the police. Despite extensive searches and public appeals, no trace of Ruth was found. A local taxi driver reported dropping her off at Box Hill, a wooded area she often visited. However, she disappeared shortly after being dropped off. As the investigation continued, it was revealed that Ruth's birth mother had committed suicide when Ruth was just three years old, a fact she had been led to believe was an accident. Two days after her disappearance, a bouquet of flowers was delivered to her stepmother, Karen, from a florist in Dorking. Ruth had ordered them on the day she vanished. Three handwritten notes were later found at Box Hill, along with a half-empty liquor bottle and empty packets of painkillers. Despite exhaustive searches and numerous interviews, Ruth was never found. The case took several turns, including a search of Catherine's home and a potential sighting of Ruth a year after her disappearance. However, no conclusive evidence has ever been found to explain her mysterious disappearance. The case remains a high-priority unsolved missing persons case, periodically reviewed by Detective Chief Inspector Alex Geldert, who has stated that the investigation will reopen if new evidence or leads emerge. As of now, all that can be done is to hope that wherever she is, Ruth Wilson has found peace. <laughs>